Hello, and welcome back to Things Are Going Great For Me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is Jay Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. If you're returning to the show, I'm absolutely thrilled. Drop me a line at thingsaregoinggreatforme at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I want to know who my repeat folks are. And if you're new here, welcome. Pull up a chair and get comfortable because we want you all to enjoy yourselves. Or why not take me with you when you go to vote in our national midterm elections ending this upcoming Tuesday, November 8th. Whether you're voting in person or mailing in your ballot, I'd love to be part of that important moment for you. Vote early and vote often, I say. You can follow me, your host, at Deering on both Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow our show handle on Instagram at things are going great for me. There you'll find our link tree that has links for our Patreon and some cool things are going great for me swag. Hey, the holidays are upon us. Why not treat yourself and a family member to some dignified swag? (laughs) We've also got hoodies, t-shirts, and tote bags, so check them out and listen in comfort and style. You can find all our products in our link tree on our show Instagram page at things are going great for me. On our link tree, you'll also find our Patreon, which features additional interview coverage from our Season 1, Season 2, and Season 3 guests, including our bonus Quarpod series, in which I ask guests about how they adjusted to life in quarantine and how the pandemic is continuing to change life in the entertainment industry. Our Patreon is a vital part of making this show happen, so if you'd like to support us, give us a subscribe on there. You can check us out on Patreon directly at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And by the way, we're delighted to welcome back our sponsor for this series, Icelandic Glacial, the purest tasting water on Earth. Sourced from the legendary Ulfus Spring in Iceland, naturally filtered through ancient lava rock, and certified carbon neutral for both product and operation. You are what you drink. Be exceptional. Icelandic Glacial natural spring water sourced from Iceland. Available on Amazon and at local retailers near you. If you like any of what you hear today, do us a big kindness. Subscribe to the show. Leave us a nice comment. Tell your aunt about us. Give us those five stars wherever you're getting your podcast from today. On each episode of this series, you'll hear from huge movie stars, big TV stars, famous podcast hosts, and even some bright, shining Broadway stars, as well as second guest interviews with exciting up-and-coming actors and comedians and established producers, authors, writers, and directors. I'm very excited about this episode. Today's first guest is Fabrizio Capano. Fabrizio is one of the most well-known comedians in Latin America and is the first South American comedian to shoot an original comedy special for Netflix called I Only Think About Myself. He is the actor and writer of the hit Chilean comedy show El Club de la Comedia. Often referred to as the John Stewart of Chile, Fabrizio also led his own late night show and was one of the hosts of a series for Comedy Central Latin America featuring a supergroup of the top five comedians from five countries in Latin America. Fabrizio also starred in the outstanding documentary Monstruo when he journeyed from his hometown in Chile to become the youngest comedian ever to conquer the Monstruo and to win the grand prize at the Viña del Mar Festival. The documentary is on YouTube. I highly recommend checking it out. This year, he was named one of the new faces of comedy at the prestigious Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal. We talk about comedy, family, and politics. It's a great chat. I'll be speaking with Fabrizio in a few minutes. And a little bit later, you'll also get a special interview with Jared Wilder. Jared is one of my very best buddies. He's both a brilliant actor and a brilliant and hilarious stand-up comedian who's acted off-Broadway and on hit TV series in addition to performing at comedy clubs like Stand Up New York and Caroline's. CBS News New York listed Jared in an article as one of five NYC-based comedians you should know. 
He writes of himself, classically trained in Shakespeare, Chekhov, and Super Mario Brothers. BFA from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts through the Stella Adler Studio of Acting. Born and raised in the mean streets of the Upper West Side. Seen on NBC's Chuck, ABC's Hope and Faith, as well as many theatrical productions as an improviser, stand-up comic, director, and producer bi-coastally. Creator and producer of Laugh and a Draft. You can follow him at Something Wilder on all socials that can be mediated. Look for his debut comedy album, Those Wilder Years, dropping this fall. (laughs) Stick around for Jared's interview. I promise you, you're not going to want to miss it. Also, because I got duped on one of the credits that he listed, and it's very funny. But first up, and without further ado, here now is a comedy icon and a very nice guy, the hilarious and insightful Fabrizio Capano. We did a comedy show together here in L.A. Uh, You were super funny. Uh, and afterwards, I discovered your very interesting background. Um, and it's really generous of you uh, to chat with me today because you're a very busy person. And um, I mean, not not that much lately. I mean, I have a child that is like playing with an iPad and ruining his brain right now. That's the only concern that I have at this moment. But like I have a couple of like light dates. I'm glad to hear that. How old is your son? He's two. Oh my gosh! So yeah, that's still pretty new. And I, you have the same concerns that I do about the the screen time. Oh yeah, it's of course poison, but like it's the only thing that it really works when I need space. So yeah, that's the upside. And the downside is like he's not gonna be that smart, but <laughs> well, it's too late. <laughs> probably. I just we're just trying to not have our kids catch COVID multiple times at this point. We have one of our kids who did not get it. We all got it finally, but then uh, our oldest didn't. He's six, so we, you know I, I want they need every brain cell they can get. But I think that it's so you know random. it is random. It's completely random. Yeah, yeah it, it feels like sense. there's they, there used to be this chatter about certain people who just don't get it. They're you know yeah. like they're mutant, like they have a mutant gene. Well, I have to say, I think I'm one of those. I never got it. And I was in a really risky situation once. I was in an interview and, and like in a real like in, in a real life interview with a guy and he talked to me really close for an hour and after the interview finished, like the producer called me and she was like he got he's positive with COVID. Oh, Jesus he got Christ. a test back. And I was like, I'm screwed because I have a tour and I'm not gonna be able to do it and then nothing happened with me. And I've been like probably like in so many flights during COVID and I was like a very risky situations and nothing happened. So my theory is like I'm or immune or maybe I got it and I never, I mean, it was like asymptomatic or some shit like that. But I honestly think that I'm one of those. (laughs) It's incredible, particularly for what you do with stand up comedy. That's been the thing. I've stayed away for a few years. I only just recently went back to do it. Had a good old time, but like, and people are coming on. They've got those those condoms now that they put on the microphones and stuff. And I don't know what that's really doing. I don't know what if anything's doing anything. You know, it's I think like, it's just if we're feeling comfortable. I don't. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't yeah. know. The science is backing up that, but it's. Yeah. I mean, whatever you need to feel that you're doing something, I think it's good. Yeah, the theater of it is important. Uh, yeah. The theater of health. Um, so you know, I had to get a bit of an understanding. 
uh, before talking with you a little bit about your home country of Chile, uh, where you're a huge star. And, um, you know, would you agree that to understand the rise in your career, a person needs to understand some of modern Chilean history? Well, I think, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like, I feel so um, inside of it that yeah. I have no clue if it matters. And of course, it matters to me. That's that's like what I take for granted. But I honestly, I don't know if it really, I mean, every country has their struggles. I think Chile has been very interesting lately. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I feel like so, I mean, lately, like, especially what happened, what happened like a couple of weekends ago with the, we have a referendum for a new constitution. Yeah. This, that, made, uh, this made the John Oliver show. I know, I know this little kid <laughs> running around uh, the president uh, in a Superman in a outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think, well, I, I love Chile. It's a pretty cool country. I have yeah. like very interesting stuff going on. So I like, I like that side of it. Well, for for my listeners, who I'm, I'm sure, uh, I mean, you're going to have listeners, fans of yours, tuning into this. I'm sure, but anybody else who's an American, just as a refresher. Uh, I guess it was back in 1973, we had the president, Richard Nixon, one of the most paranoid presidents in U.S. history. And um, uh, the Chilean government at the time, I suppose, was starting to lean a bit more sort of democratic socialist. And so Nixon CIA gets very nervous about this because they think, so yeah, as goes Chile. War. Yeah, that's it right. And that this, this would spread across South America, I guess. Well, also like the problem was like he was democratically elected, you know, and no many socialists were in like got into power that way. So they were like, uh oh, people are voting for uh the left over there. This is something that we need to do. And uh yeah, there's like a memo uh that you can see I think in the archives of a little paper that Henry Kissinger was taking right. notes and Nixon said like crush Chilean economy and they did that. They crushed the economy, and then they got rid of the president, and they established a dictator for 17 years. It was very cruel and horrifying, and yeah. we're still dealing with the consequences of that. It's like every conversation about what's happening in Chile still have a little bit of a of of that history in it. So yeah. it's it's like a trauma that you never fully recover. Yeah, so then so Pinochet quickly is declared a dictator, starts rooting out people who are disloyal to him. And, and in, this includes turning whole sports stadiums into internment camps and just yeah. har horrible stuff. So do you mind my asking, do, do you have a personal family story from these years under Pinochet? Well, nothing that I can say that is like um, that, that um, traumatic. Uh, of course, my That's parents good. were young during those age, and they, my dad was part of a political party, but uh, he, I mean, he dodged some bullets, but nothing, nothing happened specifically to them. Uh, but I think, like, even their character or the way they see the world and the way Chile behave, if, I think, like, even, like, the more intimate, interactions are tinted by this it's, it's crazy because it's when you have something like that you think it will go away especially like the way also like it fade out like that's another conversation but like we didn't have like the end of the pinochet regime didn't end up with him in jail 
right. and he have some economic success and they rail around that idea that, okay, well, we kill some people, but, you know, the economy is going well. And as we know, people don't care that much about democracy when they feel that maybe they make they make money out of the dictator, or like the government, you know, like they were feeling in a safer space. Yeah. Uh, so th there was a lot of debate around like the legacy of these horrible people. And uh, in during that period of time I was growing up, Pinochet was, this is like the craziest shit ever. It's like Pinochet was, uh, first he was in, in, in uh, part of the government. He was still taking care of the army inside the democratically elected next government. And then he hmm. went to Congress. Uh, well, this was going to be my question. I didn't know any of that. So, but this was going to be my question because, you know, there he never been, went to jail. He like never he went never, to jail. Right. No. And I think, you know, so we have a couple of questions on this. One is that we have these conversations these days here in the States about Donald Trump and the, our concern about sliding into fascism. And um, so firstly, you know, I was going to ask you, how did Chileans finally get rid of Pinochet? And you're basically saying that he sort of fucked off to different parts of the smaller, smaller branches of government. Well, he, I mean, th this is like a little bit more complicated because he changed the constitution yeah. and uh, in the, when he changed the constitution, he like, he, they created this idea that every president then became a congressman forever <laughs> with no election. Oh my God. Uh, so after he finished, uh, oh, oh he, 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 he got a lot of pressure again from the U.S. because it was a new administration, the end of the Cold War, there was like a different, they wanted to get rid of these dictatorships and it was not a good business. Okay. So everyone was like, okay, we should get rid of this guy. So they established this idea of like doing a, an election of yes or no. People will vote no and he will step out of power. And if he say yes, he'll stay there for like, I think eight more years. And I mean, can you imagine the stakes of that election? And, and, yeah, and right. it was insane because also, people were scared. A lot of people didn't trust that there was a real election. Maybe they're like just getting the names of the people who will vote against them and like you know gathering information to. Yeah. So everyone was scared of. Going you've also you've vote. also got an ideological right as well, right? The same way that the United States said you do have you have people that incredulously are believers. Yes. To yes, to yes. to a degree until there reaches a bit of a tipping point here. Well, some of them, yeah, I mean, it's like a mix between religion and it's like they're looking for an identity and then like they just, mm -hmm. they found, I mean, the, the like something that happened here too, it's like in the US, it's like their wishes come true this way, you know, and they start seeing like, oh, maybe we don't need like really like a fair open election because we can get what we need, like mm. what we want. And uh, you can control the conversation all the time, you know, like... During many, for many years, I mean, now we can see it through the lens of history, but like during the dictatorship years, there was like, no, 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 this is not, we're not like killing people or like making people disappear. They're killing each other because they used the mm -hmm, media to like mm -hmm. say they were like inside like little wars between these little groups. And also they say they're terrorists or right. they're, they're attacking democracy, like the country or and like institutions. So... Once again, you can always you can always do that, and that we can see that here. Like they right. have a whole machinery of like every time there's any conflict that we think like, oh, this is bad for democracy. They 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 like no no no. It's just like it's normal or worse. It's like it's I mean especially like what happened with Trump in January six. Is oh 
it's 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 they're saving democracy actually <laughs> you know like they were helping to save democracy absolutely and we even had there was even a representative that came out and thought that it would be a smart idea to say that america was not in fact a democracy yeah, um, yeah. you will always find you always find someone to say this crazy shit and people will rail around if they think it's a good it's, they can make money out of it that's the sad part Right. So so then and we've had these conversations also about consequences in terms of Donald Trump, because now, of course, he's facing uh, legal uh, trouble for essentially misappropriating government documents from the White House. He and th there's a big debate and question about whether he will face any consequences for that. But so after Pinochet's ouster, so Chile then becomes this kind of more of a, would you say, a ne neoliberal center left democracy for for, for about two decades? Well, we, we there's an anecdote that I think will explain uh, how Chile was managed during the 90s. And this is a true story. Like uh, George W. Bush went to Chile uh, for summit or something. And uh, he was in like um, having having dinner with like at the, at the White House of Chile called like The Coin. Hmm. So they were like having a dinner at The Coin. And there was like many tables with different uh, ambassadors and, and people who work like diplomats and whatever. And uh, George W. is like, hey, and, uh, like he asked to the president at the time that it was called Ricardo Lagos. says like, hey, what what happened with uh, with uh, with like the wife of Allende, the the guy who would kill himself during the coup? And uh, oh, she's here. Like the, Lagos was like, she's she's in another table here. Like she's, oh, that's crazy. And what happened with the dictator that you guys? Well, he's in that table over there. <laughs> you know, like they were in the same. <laughs> dinner like doing the same physical space because our transition was so fucked up we never really like really get rid of these people right and we kind of like this this left like central left that we can say it's like corporate democrats in a way they manage in a very i mean it's mm. it's hard to blame them because once again they never got full full power because of the constitution but like they managed the energy between both sides in a very smart way so the country stick to that that like that never neoliberal idea and i mean we don't we don't have like very strong uh public health system and we we even like the water is privatized and like we we have this very strong neoliberal side but at the same time it was managed by the left you know so mm. in 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 the outside it was looking like a very progressive and um yeah like a cool country that was part of like that neighborhood without being i don't know like i don't know brazil with bolsonaro at all like right. the opposite of that so they managed these two energies at the same time and that's the way i think chile grew so much and then became like this little um for 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 a lot of people like this very specific um like a very very good place to do business yeah uh, it seems to be all driven by money Right. I mean, it's very yeah. sort of capitalist in its but which is not dissimilar to the United States. So it's sort of it ends up being the influence of the United States plays sort of heavily in Chile and has done for a long time. Well, since I moved to the U.S. and I, th I know I just I, I, I'm, I'm only being in New York and in, in L.A. Um, Chile is, is way more capitalist than the U.S. Like wow. in many ways, I think right. I, ne I never. I mean, if when I when I pay taxes here, especially in New York, they're very like it's a lot of taxes. But you see where they're going mm. over there. You just 
just just feel like nothing that you need to pay for everything like literally for every single thing like in in your life can change so much if you have money and you you don't and there is there is a stark class separation, I understand as well, because there are these surviving descendants of Spanish colonizers who have this sort of inherited wealth. Is this exactly. right? Yeah. So it's also like you don't you never get that feeling of like you're gonna you're gonna move from one. Uh, I mean, there's no there's no way to like get out of poverty inside the system. You know? Right. Right. Um, so, so I think that's part of the problem now. That's one one of the reasons why Chile have like all these problems like the last couple of years. But now we're like a really like I think we're completely lost of where we have to go now with mm-hmm. the country. I think we're like in a weird, very weird, weird situation that we really don't know where to go, and all these energies are all over the place. And I think it's happening everywhere. I mean, it does feel blame, that way. Britain we seems can blame to be a, a lot mess of things right now, and yeah. We're tr- we're ho- trying to get things back on track here, but we've got these very important midterms coming up, and then you know, twenty twenty four. Who who knows? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, it feels like well, everything is up in the air. Like you never, you really never know yeah. what's gonna. Cause, I mean, we can go to like a very interesting new progressive uh, world that also can be uh, stressing and 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 not as successful as we think it could be. And at the same time, like, okay, we can go back to like a Trump or even worse, you know, someone that is like smarter than that, you know. So and then because of this sort of American influence, you're also you coming back to you. So it's like you're growing up in a country where there is a lot of sort of available American cultural touchstones in terms of like, for example, television programming and movies. You're you're growing up watching a lot of American uh, storytelling. You you saw you know Independence Day was a movie that you saw growing up. And what what were some of your favorite TV shows? Were they all American or were they majority American? I think they were like ninety ninety percent, yeah, American. And we I, I grew up like right in the time when cable TV show up there, so it was like able to see HBO for the first time when I was a kid, or like you know checking. Uh, cool stuff on on the first version of the internet. You're you're um, a big fan of Arliss. I was a big, yeah yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but I was um, I was a, I was uh I remember watching like one of my favorite shows and no one talk about this show anymore. Maybe because it didn't age well. Uh, it was uh, Married with Children. Oh God, it's a beloved show. It's a beloved I, show. There were two I, shows like that. It was Married with Children and Roseanne. And um, they are still beloved, even though, yes, Married with Children, the Al Bundy character is um, sort of like all in the family doused in gasoline. Um, Yeah. This is a character that is an enormous misogynist. And but those shows play. So I was at this when those shows were on, I was actually living in the UK and they would play those shows on television. Roseanne, I know, was a very popular show amongst, uh, you know, here in the States, of course, it's back on as in this iteration called The Connors. But there's a story that Stanley Kubrick used to have the uh, tapes of the Roseanne show shipped to his castle in the UK. <laughs> so, yeah, they were very they're popular shows. What was your impression of Married with Children? That's fascinating. And it was so funny. Like the and, and once again, it was. We, we we had a TV show in Chile called Los Venegas. It was like a sitcom about like middle class, Chilean middle class. It was like that was know, the doing point. better. And and that's that was like I felt like, oh, the whole world is like us. <laughs> that was the point. It was showcasing a kind of a middle class. Yeah. 
Um, that's amazing. And so, but then also, and critically, you're uh, familiar with American stand-up comedy, and you're watching. You, I heard you mention uh, that you were watching like Louis Black. Is that right? You were yeah, Louis yeah, Black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Eddie, of course, Eddie Murphy and people like that. Um, so, and then you get a job. You're 13. You get a job working at a newspaper. Is that right? Yeah. And yeah, what did yeah, you yeah, What did you do for the newspaper? Well, they used to have um like um, a little magazine. They, I think it was every Friday. That was like for young people, and this is like a very conservative newspaper, and they they have like this this segment where they they tried like put like little um, pieces from young people and like I don't know talking about comic books or movies or. And there was a little tradition of that magazine. There was a lot of people who worked there that then ended up having TV shows or working in media. And we were like the last itineration of that magazine with my brother. My brother was also part of it. Hmm. He actually was the one who got it first. And we, we I would, I remember like, I did a lot of different things. Once, I mean, I, I was writing like little funny pieces. It was like a little, it was based on like Woody Allen uh, book, um, uh, what's the name in English? A book of his uh, short stories. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I just wrote short stories that I found it funny and absurd, and yeah. that I think can make people laugh. And that was my first job. This is writing the little stories, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And then I remember like thinking, like I would love to do something about things that I like too, like writing things that are like more serious, but it. I mean, just explaining or talking about things that I like and interviewing people. So I did a couple of interviews. I remember, like, uh, I wrote about um, Neil Gaiman or, mm. uh, yeah. uh, I don't know, uh, Alan Moore. Um, and also, like, a music. I, I remember, yeah, like, yeah. I, I, I used to love Los Prisioneros. It's a Chilean band. And I was like, I want to write about them. So then I started doing pieces, like, more in, like, the journalistic side. But I, I always went back to writing things that I found it funny. And around this time, you've got a, you're developing a group of friends that uh, like culture and talk, you know, pop culture and, and comedy, I guess. Is that right? Yeah. I, I, I well, today I, I did an, an episode of a podcast with one of them and I was just remembering how funny it was that we just, we were all invited to be part of a TV show that failed miserably. Uh, that it was really, really bad, and but we we we, just, we loved the job so much. I remember like after school taking like two buses to get to this little uh, production company to hang with them, mm. and they're like they're ten years older than me, and we we my brother we went there and just hang with them, and we connect with like the sense of humor. And then we start talking about, oh, you know this comic, and you know about this guy, or did you watch this movie, and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, you fall in love with someone like that. You know, like you're like, oh, we need to do something now. Yeah. And um, that's when we decided to do our first stand-up show. Uh, and there was nothing, like, with that name out there at the time. <laughs> there was nothing like that at the time. Yeah. Nope. There was nothing. There was no I mean, stand-up comedy scene in, this no. was in Santiago? Yes, yes, in the capital. And there was just one guy that at that time that was he was already old that he's called Coco Legrand and he do monologues, you know, and mm. he's he's yeah, he have like a very stand up comedy energy, but like he used to call this Cafe Concert. No idea why. 
It was like coffee concert. Well, it's classy. It sounds very classy. It is very classy. <laughs> and he was the only one doing something that is we can say that is stand up. Yeah. Uh, but we we were like young and like bringing new topics and being like just ourselves. And we were like lower middle class. And we were the first one doing this. And the crazy thing is like how easily everyone started talking about this. Like we were starting the second floor of a tango club. Right. Uh, and it was great. I still remember that room. It's not there anymore, but it's like the, it's exactly like the belly room. Oh yeah. Right. Sure. At the comedy it, store. Yeah. You small. know, like it's, it's small and like the energy is contained. So the laugh really explode. And yeah. I remember like feeling like, wow, like this is how comedy is supposed to be. Uh, and at the time people can smoke inside. So I remember like this cloud of, I mean, it, it was, it was kind of romantic. Absolutely. It sounds romantic, yeah. And it, you said it, you did this TV show. You said it was it failed miserably, but I, 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 it was my understanding that it ran for seven years. That's the show after this. Like we uh, met in a show okay, that failed. Okay. But then, 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 uh, then. Uh, well, I went to do a show in, in on cable TV, and then they started a show, and then we we joined, uh, and we 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 did this show called the Comedy Club. That that that's the one around for seven years, and it's still like ahead for Chile. Like I, I still. I think it it aged well. Like the people who watch it now, they're maybe like in the mid thirties, and and uh, yeah, and, and I th- I, th- I think is 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 a very it was the first show that also like shows stand up as a thing. So mm. everyone was talking about this and created a new generation of comics. And I think it, that's like the seed that created the scene that we have now. Yeah, so you're doing monologues and sketches there, and you know this. What was interesting to me is also about just how quickly this became popular, which I guess would make a lot of sense. And you, you know, you've gotten the moniker before uh, that you're the John Stewart of Chile, which I'm sure you love hearing. But or <laughs> I'm sure that um, what I mean is it probably sounds embarrassing. But I, to me, I would liken it a little bit more to like Bassem Yusuf in Egypt, because in a way it's like you're bringing some much needed laughter back into the culture, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and in a way, of, of course, here the industry, it's so um, it's been around for so long. There's so, so much experience in also budgets and like things that we don't have there. Like, mm. I mean, the idea, I mean, even like I, I was doing a show that was on primetime every week with did season. There were like 33 episodes or 65 episodes. There were absurdly amount of, of episodes. The episodes were like three wow. hours each. Holy shit. Um, we did one monologue, a new monologue of seven minutes every week. Jesus. Um, once again, it's like an absurd amount of work. Uh, and it doesn't make any sense. And of course, it's going to be. And you can, I mean, the idea of having a, a team of writers, forget about it. Like, <laughs> no, you wrote your own stuff, us. right? Yeah. It was just us. And like, we were friends and we were just like, okay, help each other. But honestly, it was on, on you. Yeah. So all these things that he, here, like, take it for granted, we didn't have any of those. And, uh, that's when 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 I when I think about like John Stewart or all these guys, I'm like, of course we we just replicate that because they have the time and the and the team to build something, and we we just have to like, you know, try to take something that someone else tried before because we don't have time. We have to like fill three hours of TV every week. That's incredible. So, so yeah, I mean that's that's the way we did it for a long time. That's Saturday Night Live times two. 
Because they do, right? They're doing an hour and a half. You're doing three hours and you're throwing. And how many writers? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. like all this team and like the experience, like they're doing it for 40, 49 years or something. I don't know how many years of <laughs> SNL. Yeah. They know, they know like how to do a thing like that. And the, the, the seasons are like four episodes. Now we're going to stop for a week. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so you, so then after this, you go on to make. Uh, I guess you go, you make some movies, you, you're playing stadiums. You yeah, we're start, doing big shows. Yeah. You're doing big shows. And then you start branching out. You move to Mexico, I guess, for a year. Yeah. And you, and you start you start visiting the U.S. a little bit, right? Yes, 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 yes. Um, no, that was a lot of fun. Mexico is great. The scene is, is amazing. I, I have mm. very, very good memories and very great friends from there. Uh, nah, Mexico is the best. It's just so much fun. Yeah. And so and then, OK, so then after that, you become the subject of a fascinating documentary, which is documenting your journey from your hometown in Chile to become the youngest comedian ever to conquer what's called the Monstruo in Chile at the Quinta Vergara, Vergara Amphitheater. And you go on to win the grand prize at the Viña del Mar Festival. This is an event that's watched live by yeah, but 15 a, million people. Yeah, this is an absurd story what? because well f it's, i think this event have 60 years now this is like yeah it's, it's, it's a tv show but it's a live festival uh it happened every summer at the end of the summer in viña del mar there's this little beach town right next to santiago and uh the thing is like this beautiful amphitheater that is pretty similar to uh the hollywood bowl hmm. uh it's like a you know open space and like they have a stage and, and like good sound. It's very professional, and this festival goes for five nights. Uh, it's live on TV every year. One station like they bet which one is gonna get it for like concession for four years or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And these five nights, you have uh, every night you have three musical numbers. And some of them are Shakira. Some of them are uh -huh. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Some of <laughs> right. it is is for Ricky, everyone. Ricky like, Martin and yeah. Once again, it's like Ricky Martin, and then uh, I don't know. Franz Ferdinand was there once, and mm. it, it's it's very eclectic. The Police right. plays play there once, and oh, Feed wow. No More. And it, it once again, it's very random. And and uh, Juan Gabriel, like all these famous Mexican artists, were there every mm. single year. Cheyenne, like. All these Latino artists were there, and like now reggaeton, J Balvin, Bad Bunny, like all mm. of them went to this festival because it's like a classic for Latin, for the Latin industry. Yeah. And the but the craziest part is that between the first and the second music show, there's a comedian. Used to be like a a, a variety act. Mm -hmm. Could be a magician, could be a guy doing things with fire, whatever. But then it kind of evolved to. Uh, joke tellers. So for many years, different joke tellers with characters and like clowns and weeks and stuff start doing that segment. Right. And then that changed with one guy, an Argentinian guy who started doing stand-up for the first time there. And they started inviting people to do stand-up. And then I was like the youngest one to ever done it. But this is the tricky part. It's like it's called the audience is called the monster because if they don't like you, they boo you on <laughs> right. national TV. Right. So they get off of stage <laughs> and everyone is watching this. Like everyone you know, <laughs> your parents, your family, your enemies, right. your high school your enemies, crush, yeah. 
<laughs> everyone is like watching you get it boo from stage right uh and that's safe with you probably forever um mm -hmm. and it, but the, the, the other side if they like you they're starting they start screaming seagull seagull and they like the host bring a golden seagull yeah. i mean a, 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 a silver seagull and they, they keep screaming they give you the golden seagull it's an absurd event <laughs> it doesn't make any sense like, but reputation year? and pride and legend, I mean, it's all tied up here. Now, I'm going to tell folks, here, yeah. this documentary is available now on YouTube. It's called Monstruo. I highly yeah. recommend people check this out. And I have subtitles. So if you if you don't you know, if you don't speak Spanish, it comes with subtitles in English. Yes, I enjoyed it immensely. So, so, you, so there was a great clip of a comedian who went on, and this poor guy, he, he's like, begging for his minutes because he goes out and he does he's a minute in and they're booing him and he's like, like a boom. minute he's like a minute i don't get a minute and then he's like two minutes can i get two minutes and they're just screaming like, at him he was looking at like a guy who did the show like a, a the night before he was like they give it, you give him five minutes to him like what, <laughs> yeah. what can you just wait for me absolutely no, it's, devastating it's, and so and my, my favorite part of your documentary is when your buddy who is another comedian He's going through all the comments on social media as you're on the road oh, yeah. traveling yeah. to the gig. <laughs> and the comments are rough, man. I mean, they're saying they're calling you boring. People are calling you boring. They're calling you like a spoiled brat and all these things. Yeah. Uh, really nasty. And your friend is kind of enjoying reading it's, Of course, he's enjoying it. It's, it's, it's a great dog because they think it's like, I, I was talking with a friend who's a Mexican comic and he was like, I can feel that no one is showing like the way we are doing things in Latin America because we really have to struggle with like some basic shit, like with the basics of the basics of comedy. And we still have to swim through it and, and do the show, you know, like and make people laugh and have a good hour. So every time I have shows here, they're like, I'm, I'm, we're so sorry. The audience is a little bit far. I'm like, you don't even know. You don't like, even know. Yeah. You have no idea where I come from. You've been through the uh, gauntlet. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like I remember something that uh, Dave Chappelle said once because he had played the famous Apollo Theater in Harlem and and got booed there. Yeah. This is, of course, you know, years and years ago. But he said about it, he was like, you know, when it happened, he was like, actually, like, this isn't that bad <laughs> like you know and i noticed it's not you the end of the world it's not the end of the world and i noticed you kind of purported to have that same attitude about it you say at some point you're like look they boo me like who cares and i do want to know like where does that come from in you where does that fuck it attitude what gives you the the courage to be like if 15 million people <laughs> all at once say no to me i will be okay well i think maybe something about i don't know i mean it's i always have this feeling that i want to be in the places that i don't supposed to be mm, you know when someone yeah. say like you shouldn't do this or shouldn't be in this place that's exactly the place where i want to be who was telling you that when you were young i mean chile is very conservative and have like this energy of like uh you every time you like try to be different or try to like say something in a different way or you are just um i don't know different kind of person with different interests they make you feel like weird mm. you know mm -hmm. yeah so i grew up with this thing of like every time they make you feel weird i double down mm. yeah you know um so maybe there's something about that that is is there like every time you feel like oh uh it's supposed to like 
I mean, the other day I was doing a show and there was like uh, this very conservative people in Long Island and I was like, I was thriving. I was, I was like so happy to be here, to be there because it was like, oh, this is like a show that I have to fight for, for attention and for like bringing it to my side and like it's going to be like some tension there. And maybe I'm not, I mean, I'm not that connected with the idea that they have guns, but in, <sighs> because we, we, we didn't right. have that growing up. Right. Uh, but maybe like, yeah, I, I was feeling that, that energy back of like, maybe when I do a show in New York and it's just like progressive people who think exactly the same as me and feel like, ah, eh, this is going to be fun, but it's, yeah, it's going to be okay. <laughs> the other things are like, I can't believe that we just did that shit, you know? Um, when you and, get, and when you're like done, that. when you get off and you're like, yeah, there's yeah. a high that comes with it. Was that, is a really different kind of uh, boost in my, in my brain. When do you, I do shows, we're like eat hard. Do you chase a high in other ways? Do you, do you do any? You know, I don't know what what it's like growing up in uh, as a kid in Chile, but like, are you do people smoke pot? Is there a lot of that going on? Is you know? Did you? Yeah, were, but did I never, you stay I away from it? With that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I never I, connect you with that. You strike me as the type who didn't. Yeah. No, it never it never works for me that well, and uh, I don't know. I don't like the smell of weed. I never it was never part of my culture, and I have friends who, of course, um, smoke pot, and I'm I'm of course okay with it, and even like other other kind of drugs. I'm like, yeah, just go for it. I'm it's it's like for me, honestly, like the only way to like get that energy boost of like and mm. connect is is doing a show and do well and like find something new in it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, I stopped using uh, weed for the first time this year, a few months ago now, but I've never gone this long without using it and, you know, in, in probably in about 20 years. And I think, and I, I don't really miss it, which is interesting, but I, wow. I, I do get those, I seek out those other kinds of natural highs that you get from feeling good about yourself and tr challenging yourself. But um, I was just curious about that. But anyway, so... So then, so the final day arrives at this event. You, your, your lovely parents are in the audience, and I love something that yeah. your your mother is so sweet because she says like, "Well, I don't want them to boo him," you know. I, yeah, no, she's like, "I'm not okay with it." Like, yeah, she's like, "It's mean," you know. I love. She was so sweet, and then, but what an amazing moment because you go out, you do, you do very well, you kill, and just to see your your whole family there, so proud of you, and you you've conquered the monster. It's a beautiful moment in the documentary. And then is the, am I right that this then gets you a deal with Netflix to do a special? Yeah, yeah, it was part of it. It was part of like I, w I was already having conversation with them, but yeah, I think that that was like the thing that sealed the deal. Um, yeah, and and since then, well, I, I I left Chile like before doing that show, um, but uh, you would, yeah, that, feel, this was a return, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now, well, I I I feel like. Since then, it's, it's, it's every time I go to Chile, it's like easier to like full uh, sell out right away, and especially because I just mm. go for a week, so it's like okay, you can see me now or in three more months or like six more months. So yeah, it was it, it worth it? It worth the risk and yeah. just experience of it. Like all those things are. I mean, I think like the every time like someone asks me for advice in comedy, like I'm always say the same. It's like just do everything everything till at some point you stop doing everything you start choosing but like at the beginning and the first five years it's just like just say yes go go everywhere like you never know like maybe it's gonna be the shittiest show 
ever and you're going to find like a worth or like a way to stand or hmm. maybe you're just going to find a friend in the audience or find a friend in like the other comics there and like then he's going to do something that you're going to be like yeah I remember you remember that shitty show that we did that day <laughs> all those things are like so important in comedy and they're not yeah. connected to like posting a clip in TikTok you just like be there and do something weird and unique that's a great philosophy so so you go on to you create a netflix special called i only think about me is that right yeah yeah okay so i want to ask about those okay so you're you because in this in this special you're talking about subjects i guess like corruption war dictatorship am i right uh, a little bit yeah a little bit okay so but previous to this a lot of your comedy at the beginning was you know it's about your dating life and girls and things like that but now donald trump is president of the united states and as you said earlier bolsonaro has been elected in brazil does this feel like an important moment uh when you're doing this special to pivot to political uh commentary or humor well I always, always been very political as a person. I always been very connected with uh, what's going on, and I, I always give you my opinion. And I have a, an, a Twitter account to like get horrible messages and like just put my <laughs> horrible opinion all out there too. Uh, but at the same time, I feel that it's so boring just being a, a political person. I feel like it's so mm -hmm. even like I I like this uh, like topic. I feel when it's only about this, it just becomes daunting and 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 just dark. And especially like with the the world where we're living, I feel like when when comedy is just like now we go with the political show, it's like it's so depressing. Mm. So I always try to do comedy that it goes everywhere. Like go like family, friends, blah, and then in the middle, boom, let's talk about this. Then mm. maybe it's more you know sad or like dark or like you know uncomfortable. And we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna get uncomfortable, but then we're gonna talk about bread, and you know, like we're gonna have fun with this because it's how part much, of how much we want to, yeah. And you, there's a clip of you hitting your dad, which is really funny. Which is it's just right at the beginning <laughs> of the special, but it's like you're yeah. you're marching through the streets and you're filled with all this like viv and vim about political things or whatever, and it just comes out in this confusing moment where you just hit your father in the face. It's this sort of misplaced anger, or maybe appropriately placed aggression towards your dad, but it just comes from a place of everything else happening in the world. I just thought it was a great, concise way to say, uh, here's something funny that feels familial and is about family, but also is incorporating sort of the, the, in my the, brain was also like I'm making fun of like this thing of comedians who are like here we go to say the truth because actually like, right, my attitude right. at the beginning is like here I come you know like the music is like high energy and like you, here we come to say what no one is saying and all this shit and then it's like just like uh, I'm I'm sorry I, I don't know why I let myself go with this <laughs> is, is that the purpose of the title then because I think Bo Burnham came out with this incredible uh special that he released while uh or he created while in quarantine and you see him sort of tackling social justice issues in a way that feels very self-serving he yeah. sort of cops to that and it feels like the title of your special is sort of nodding to this idea as well it's like the shame of the fact that you only think about yourself, right? Yeah, and 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 when I put that title, is because I think that's my year before I I came up with my family. I I I got married. I have a a kid now, and it used to be exactly like that. You only think about yourself. Like you only the only thing that matters to you is like whatever. And because you're you're still uh, in your post adolescence, you're still in your brain, just like trying to like 
you know, fill your own needs and you don't care if someone else have, uh, you know, it's, a, it's I think it's like a growing up process. And I think I've tried to put all my material that it was from that era there. Yeah. Um, right. And I would love to do like a follow up that is like, I only think about you and then just doing a show about my son or like, you know, like something Aww. about, you know, how different it's now in your brain when you, you're not center of the universe and how good it is. And I think we, look down on that but like we should do that more <laughs> that that's a that's a total winner yeah that's a great idea uh, i love that okay so you know so there's an important phrase in comedy i was talking with another comic uh remy don yesterday uh about the phrase who are you why are you and why now and you know i think that couldn't be more clear about your career and your story in chile but then when you're deciding when you're spending more time in the united states this becomes a bit of a trickier formula would you say yeah absolutely or maybe well it, it was harder for me to, in chile when i was i was in chile to figure out that formula because when you're inside of when you look at from outside it was easier to be like oh i'm i'm this person mm -hmm. on stage like oh, this is what i'm doing and this is the reason why but while i was living through it i was not paying that much attention to these kind of things and you so oh, so that's interesting so while you're in the states it sort of gives you clarity on sort of what you what your work represents at, or has represented in Chile. But now in the States, you're also sort of struggling with a, a much more crowded field of people who actually do comedy, right? Yeah, yeah, an insane amount of people. And uh, I, well, I'm, I'm really happy now because I was making the numbers the other day and it took me like five years to feel that I understand one part of the question. That is like right. what I can do here in my brain, like what I can do here, because in, it's, in, it's, in the states, yeah, because it's mm -hmm. like, what's the point of being here when there's so many voices, you know? It's like it's so so overcrowded with voices. So it was like, what I what is what I, what is like the message that someone like me mm -hmm. can can bring? Yeah, and I think it's like part of the conversation we just had at the beginning. It's like, I think in the U.S. They're just starting the process of figuring out that maybe you guys are not ahead of Latin America. That Latin America is, is the, is the <laughs> right. future of the U.S. We love, we love it, right? We come from the future. We we went through this many times. We figure out this nightmare. We handle it with grace, I think, mm. and we were able to like find solutions for very divided. I mean, we're not at the fully at the other side, but like we we went through this like we, we it's not right. like we just vote for trump like our countries you can tell like i mean peru or we like vote for ivanka and then we vote for jared like we're we, oh we went like the whole package of these crazy people you know heaven forbid and, yeah and and we understand that you can be happy even with all this going on so i i feel like there's something there that i can do here mm. i i still have to articulate it right but I think there's something there that it's not in every single comic because once again, you're right. Like there's so many that you feel at some point that we are talking about the same. We're all talking about the same. So it's like maybe here's something that I, that I just, it's just me hmm. bringing this here or maybe me and a few. You know? I love that. I mean, you know, but it, it's sort of in the beginning, as I understand it, you know, and this is an incredible part of your story to me, which is that you, you're sort of trying to figure out uh, how to get some footing here. And it's like, you are, you're humbling yourself and going back and doing open mics, even though you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you've, you're hugely accomplished and, you know, and people are telling you that you should do the, the Latin X 
comedy night at this place and that place. So basically, you know, I wonder, like, how does this, what is this doing to your mind? Do you have any moments where you're feeling particularly low about this? Or do you, you know, going oh, many in many like, times? Many times. All <laughs> I right. Mean, well, it's a, it was a weird, um, uh, transition because in one side of my brain I was like, man, I'm in the U.S. doing stand-up. Even if it was a shitty, horrible uh, open mic with no people, with just comics in the audience, and you know the open mics, this nightmare mm-hmm. of like a yeah. dark hole of uh, sad souls. Absolutely. And uh, but then my brain was like, man, I'm 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 doing it here. You know, I'm doing it in the U.S. I'm learning English and I'm like using my my new language. And trying new stuff, and I'm getting like maybe one little laugh, and like that's that's a good step. In the other side, I was like, I'm eating all my savings. I don't know mm. if this is gonna work. It is a lot of work. There's many many people. I and yeah, of course, it, there was a lot of like, hey, you should go for like the Latinx or Latino uh, uh, shows and stuff. But in my brain, I was like, if I just, I mean, I did all of them, of course. But like, if I only stay in that audience. I'm just, I'm never going to get what I want. That is, I just want to be a comic. I don't want to be like a Latina comic. I don't want to be in the right. Latino nights and be like, I'm the Latino guy. I don't, I don't, I don't feel that's fair. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. I wondered if it made you feel, was there any kind of familial feeling with that? Or is it more alienating when someone is like, this is what you you need to do here. Now that you're in the States, that's what we do here. I know. I mean, I hated it. I And I still hated it. I mean, I still hate this when they do this latino nights or like only latino shows like even like when they do like only female shows i understand like when girls wanted to put together a show just for them but when, when like the venue is like we're gonna do the latin like the, the the female night it's like no just do a show <laughs> with more female comics if you want to uh but why, definitely why? definitely more female comics that seems to be the issue and yeah it seems to be it, 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 it seems to be a complicated conversation, but you're coming into it from a sort of very unique perspective because... But in, in, in a way, in a way, I feel, and this happened to me, I, I was I was part of JFL this year of New Faces. Right, right. And, it, and one of the things that happened to me when they called me to tell me, I was like, fuck, I'm sure they have like a Latino new category that they just came up and I'm going <laughs> to oh, be in that one. okay, got it, right. Because sometimes... Uh, most of the institutions they tr- they want to help, so they're like, "Oh, we're gonna do something for you guys," but it, it's it's not helping because it's putting you in a in a side, in a different box. Of, you're not yeah, in the box. real one. Like you're not in the real one. You're like in the in for you and for your. It's like no, I want to be in the real one, and that was amazing about that story. It's like no, I, I, then I, I realized no, you're just and I I was maybe like one of the few or maybe I mean I don't know if there was another one, maybe the only one that was not the, from the U.S. Uh, yeah, that's not... right. It, I think it was an incredible thing that you did, you know, and I, even though it, it, it's, it's it's amazing because it's like you're it makes a complete sense. You should be doing these festivals in every country in the world. That's how big of a talent you are. And but to go through the United States to get into JFL, that's a hard thing to do because it's such a scrum. There's so many people that are fighting tooth and nail to get just stage time let alone to get to be regular at the comedy store, let alone to, you know, to get an audition for SNL or or to get on Just for Laughs. So, you know, to me, it's like you you did it. And you, after humbling yourself, you know, you're making a serious go of it in the States. And after years of hard work, 
you get the Just for Last Festival in Montreal as one of the new faces of 2022. It's a huge honor in comedy. Usually very predictive of success in North America. So yeah, no, it's 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 very interesting. I I I I mean, I'm really proud of of it. I think once again, it's like the kind of things that you. I mean, I never thought it, this is going to be like my first um, thing that I want to be like. Oh, I I did something in the U.S. You know, I never th expect to be JFL because I I didn't even know how to get there. By the yeah. way, we'll, we'll we'll give Canada their flowers here. It's just that it's, they yeah, tend right. to, they tend to select from a pool, uh, not exclusively from the U.S., but predominantly. Yeah, I mean, we can say Canada and the U.S. Like that's the two markets. The North thing. American, and, right? And 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 they have they have um their their own uh, uh, new faces for for Canadians too. Um, but once again, it's like I think that that. My plan is like really go through it, figure out the 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 comedy map, and try to establish myself here, mm -hmm. and just just be a comic, just be a comic in the biggest market possible. Yeah, uh, because because and, you might feel like you're not supposed to. It goes back because, to your, it goes exactly. back to your thing. Yeah, because that you're not supposed to be here. So well, let's see. Yeah. I love what you said about uh, you've said in interviews where you're sort of figuring out the translation of your jokes from Spanish to English and, and vice versa and how there can be sort of lessons learned there. And you talk about your experience of jokes in English were very much like set up punchline, very like wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, as we say yeah. here. Yeah. And it's, you know, but in whereas in your Spanish, it's sort of more poetic. There's beautiful metaphor, and it's more musical. I guess there are rhyming words and things. And would you say it's more um, storytelling in style? I think so. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, there was a first. I think the first generation was like a, a lot of like observational comedy. Now it's getting more into stories and like more personal stuff. Um, uh, the other day I went to see Jacqueline Novak. Uh, yeah, right. And I was like, oh, this is like the way comedy in Latin America works in a way because she's so musical, she's rhythmical. She's not like just trying to punch you, punch you, punch you, punch you. She's just trying to like get you in a mood and she's just moving up. I, I was like, this is exactly what I remember when I seen like great performance from Latin America. Well, you know, yeah, I think it exists. I think there's a lot that exists here. And I think that's part speaks again to what we've been talking about. The crowd is so, uh, the field is so crowded. But I think that, yeah, I, there are those performers here where they will blend comedy and theater. Yeah. yeah. The, and they'll call it the art, you know, comedy as art. But, you know, oftentimes I think it's like if you're, you know, and this also extends to folks who are going to Edinburgh and, you know, and doing a one person show. It's like there's this blend of theater there. But I think that, uh, um, yeah, there's a lot that you can find here. So when you go into your, so can you talk a little then about your process of auditioning for JFL? What did you go in preparing? How much do you have to prepare? How many, how many, uh, how many callbacks and auditions were there? Well, they called me for the first round, uh, with many, many people. It was like an insane amount of people. You have like five minutes and I think it was at the stand. Uh, I think they seen the clip first. Oh, in New York, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. at the stand in New York. Uh, and I really work in a very tight five minutes with a lot of jokes, with a lot of, like, a little bit of my history, with, like, a callback, like, a little piece there that kind of, like, feels rounded. Hmm. Uh, 
and then they called me to do a second uh i mean a, a callback uh with six minutes at the new york comedy club um but i never i never expect anything out of it and actually like when i was at the at the at, at the green room all the comics told me like no I, I haven't tried like eight times and i was like oh right so yeah. it's like something that people try a lot Right. And and so well okay maybe it's not gonna be this year but like a lot of people tried this many times so I was like fine with that yeah um but it was uh, it was a process of like when you put energy into like hey, I'm gonna really craft these five minutes I'm gonna do I ask a lot of friends and a lot of people for like give me five at any show that you have just give me little mm -hmm. fives here mm -hmm. and there because it's so different when you do fifteen it's so mm -hmm. different like right. you can't really like tell what you're doing uh, for five when you do more than five because you, you stretch out, like you change things, you like change your rhythm. You, yeah. you feel comfortable with like, okay, maybe I'm not going to kill now. So when I change, like at the end, I'm, I can, I can, you know, bring them back. Mm -hmm. uh, That's so right. I did, I did a lot of, a lot of five minute sets. And then for the sixth, um, I did a couple, I didn't do that much because I didn't have that much time, but I was able to like, okay, I'm going to extend this one. I'm going to like, I, I time it. I, I was really good at, at, at that. Uh, just like thinking, okay, these five minutes are are just different to like working anything anything else. Like I'm gonna put the same energy of was doing an hour, but like for five minutes. Mm, that's in, that's 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 impressive. And so, how did the festival end up going? Oh, it was great. I, I turned on a light. I think it's now too bright. Uh, oh, it was <laughs> it was it was great. It was great. I love it. Like the festival in general is even if you're not going as a guest. It's so good. Like you can see everything in like a very, it's, it's everything right, right around like this little square. So easy to walk around venues. It's a great festival. Like even if you think about it, like as a if you're gonna buy a pass and just go there, it's so much fun. You yeah. can see all the shows that you always think you're gonna see, but you never see because you're in the same town. You know, like mm. I, yeah, at some point I will see it because it's gonna be there forever. No, this is like okay, I'm, I can see five shows in one night. If you walk around, and uh, then the show or show was amazing. Like I met Pete Holmes. Um, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, he was so so nice and generous. And yeah, we talk yeah. about this documentary comedian. Oh uh, uh, yeah, with Orny Adams and Seinfeld. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. No, because I, I was like the night before, I was like I have to watch again Orny Adams yeah, at the at the at JFL, and I just like found this clip oh is that because that's everybody says you got to watch this as a potential cautionary tale right i mean just me i was like i remember this festival because of that i know about this festival he because just of... he was just on marin i heard his interview on marin i loved it exactly I, i'm very happy for orny adams that he's had he yeah. has a very successful show and you know look i think anybody who puts their time into this business for so long and cares about it and loves it as much as he does and you do it's like you know, uh, hopefully everybody finds a place for themselves where they can make some good money and enjoy doing their passion, you know? But, yeah, I think he fi he figured it out. Like, yeah. it took him a, an extra minute, but, like, yeah, he's... I'm, yeah, I, I listened to that interview, too, and I and I love it. Uh, but, yeah, I watched I watched that clip before that night because I was like, how was this festival, like, in the 90s or whatever? Uh, <laughs> so it was... It was it was it was a great experience, and once again, I feel I think it's gonna come out on YouTube at some point, like the clip of that 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 show. I want to watch it. I have good memories of how it went, but of course, we're like you're so high energy that you know you you kind of like getting a blur mm. of. Uh, I just I just feel that it, it went really well, and all my jokes were there, and I feel happy about my my set.
That's great. So, and so it looks like you have a lot of projects on the horizon. I think you've got your own podcast coming out. Is that right? Well, I'm doing a podcast for Chile now. Uh, I kind of stopped doing the other one. So now I start a new one called Thursday and it goes every Thursday. Uh, I'm, I want to start doing something in English soon. Uh, hopefully uh, at the before the end of the year. I'm doing a couple of, of shows now at the end of the year. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, I'm just like, you know, trying to like, like everyone, trying to get more shows, trying to like just do more and more and like keep learning. How old are you now? I'm 33. Oh, the Jesus year. <laughs> the Jesus year. The final, the final year. Yeah, we say here in the States, we say the Larry Bird year. Um, <laughs> well, Fabrizio, this has been a real honor for me. And um, thank you so much oh, for doing this. Uh, I'm proud to know you. And uh, you're a comedy icon. I'm, I'm inspired by your courage and facing huge challenges. And, uh, I, and I wish you continued success. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. And I have this his huge challenge here. My little boy that Nino. is like Nino. So uh, sorry for everyone that's listening. I have to listen like a little baby. Be like, papa, papa. No, it's beautiful. But that's life. That is life. Uh, a beautiful part of life. Um, thank, thank you so, so much. much for this. Yeah, thank you. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Fabrizio Capano. A big thanks again to Fabrizio for doing it. I hope you all enjoyed it. Before we move on to our second interview, I'm going to take another opportunity to ask you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcasts from today. We've got more incredible interviews with folks like Leonard Robinson, Claiborne Elder, Beth Reisgraf, Susie Abramite, Gil McKinney, Sufi Bradshaw, Ji Young Han, and Michael Grant Terry coming in the next few weeks. Remember to subscribe to our Patreon to get all our extras with Chris Pine, Melissa Fumero, Baron Vaughn, Sarah Paxton, Chantal Tui, Patrick Adams, and more. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Things are going great for me. And you can check out our link tree to get some of our merch. Our link tree is on our Instagram at things are going great for me. If you like what you hear so far, please give us those five-star ratings. Leave us a nice comment. We so appreciate all your ratings, reviews, and kind words. And we want to keep bringing you these great episodes. Next up is Jared Wilder. Not only did Jared and I go to school together at NYU, but we worked on a production of David Mamet's Glengarry Glen Ross that enjoyed a historic extension for a final conservatory production at the Stella Adler Studios in New York. And much like David Mamet, Jared has his own language. <laughs> in Jared's case, his conversation is delightfully sprinkled with pop culture references. This interview would function as a dangerous drinking game if you had a swig for every pop culture reference contained herein. Here's one of my favorite people in the whole world, the wonderful, hilarious, and kind Jared Wilder. So we've known each other now for about 20 years. Yeah, it's pretty incredible that when What's I think about... That's half our lives. Half our lives. Half our lives where you were like a brother and best friend to me. And some of the most Sam. impactful, important, difficult, uh, wonderful moments that we've, all, that we've shared together. It, it's kind yeah. of amazing because to have anyone in this world, in this life that you can meet. And yet it then, you know, brought him out to all our our wonderful other friends as well, and then our, our editor extraordinaire, Sandwise, Christopher Frontier. Chris Frontier. We've you got know? a great, we have a great 
multiple circles now of friends that uh, yeah it's like the the olympic it's like the olympics they're just like they're coming around (laughs) and everyone's you know and it's great but i I really it's amazing because i was talking about this with uh, my parents and uh because after i had seen company and i told them i was going to go see the new uh, the the um the one on broadway right uh, now yeah the one on broadway right now the updated version which is really incredible you know we'll get into that but i'm telling you this for for not that we haven't spoken about it privately but also, just so we can have it on the record, that my parents, <laughs> who are born and raised, upper, well, not, born and raised in New York and theater goers their entire lives, and yeah. Upper West Side Jews for most of it, were like, <laughs> you know what, for most of it, it was like, you know what, we don't need to see it again. We saw Claude do it, and that was it. And they really meant that. And It's the it, sweetest compliment. The sweetest compliment. Well, your mother saved my life. So I think that we're, well, I guess we're not even, but still. She may have that one time we were up in Massachusetts and you got very, you got very sick. It was, yeah. yeah, it was crazy. And so that's what's amazing is that some of genuinely, when I, when I thought about what we might talk about today and, and like just all the things, it's really amazing to me that some of genuinely the best, worst, and everyday parts of our lives, we've always really like, been there and it's yeah and, and and talk about our group of friends too like and this is something that i've i've long believed i'm never surprised when incredible awesome people associate with incredible awesome people hmm. and i'm less surprised when douchebags hang around with douchebags you know <laughs> and it's not surprising that some of the kindest best most amazing people i've met were from our friendship and our yeah. group and like the best some of I will say some of the greatest best times of my life over the last 20 years was us rocking it out and yeah. so you know thank you for that you know thank you for that of, of anything you know it's pretty it's, it's pretty incredible because I don't think everyone has that you know no and, no I, and, yeah 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 you know now more than ever I, I'm just so appreciative of all the people that we know you families that just you know it, it's a really special thing that we have and i and i don't know it's not, it's not that we didn't all know what that was when we were younger we absolutely knew yeah but now i look at it and i'm just like wow this this cornucopia of <laughs> awesome and incredible people and they're ours you know yeah. this this is this is our mcu you know and and everyone's <laughs> off doing their own thing here and there and everyone has their own movies but then when we need to team up, when anyone needs, hey, somebody's coming to your town, you know, and then we, we all come together. And it's 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 not everybody yeah. has that. And I just, you know, not that I, I didn't always know that or already know that, but the idea that somehow after everything that's happened over the last couple of years, I'm just so right. unbelievably appreciative of that every day. Being able to hop on the Zoom and, and check in was, has been hugely important. Right, like, and it's amazing because we we saw we were talking to people more on Zoom than we were it. seeing them in real life. It was I, great. I, I loved doing. It. I loved this age of like FaceTiming your friends. You know, yeah. uh, I, I I really like it. I don't know how much I'm now that things are kind of winding down a little with the pandemic. Hopefully, we're not right. doing it quite as much anymore the way that we were. But that was such a an important. Uh, way to connect with people and it was it was fun too it was it was like it was almost like um it was almost like walkie talkies like that way that when you were kids it's like you just without needing to text someone in 
ahead of time like are you free because everybody was home everybody it's stranger was home. things it's stranger yeah. things but we're all adults and it's like yeah crazy that there was a period in time with the wiccan which was a a thing that a lot of our friends had done and it was like a sure we'll get together on every thursday and it oh, started right. as it started as an absolute joke and then for a year and a half of our lives like Every week we were getting together in ways and, and you were watching, watching random things. Yeah. So what was the? Because I remember, yeah, I heard about this that you were you guys were doing this. So you were watching. Were they horror movies once a week? What, what was the it's, genre? Okay. So it started as an absolute joke in a group thread. We were like, oh, we should get together and watch John Wick, and then one of oh, us the threw weekend, out, oh yeah, right, the weekend, and so we started with and and like this whole group of people. Some that I'd never met in my life and then wound up meeting a year and a half later or two years later in person. So we all got together and like we would just sign on and, and, and you know, chill and hang. And then and we started with John Wick 1 and then we're like, you know what, let's keep it going. Then we went into Wick 2, then 3. Then we started into a, the Kiana songs <laughs> yeah, that we have before us. Yeah, and yeah. then after that, we went into the next, to the next. And then Johnny Von Thaden... He was uh, picking, like, very discernibly in a great way of, like, all right, we're going to try this this week, this this week. And it was just a place where we could come to be together and break yeah. bread and be like, hey, we're all still we're, – we're good. Like, we're, we're here to – and also know that we're all here for each other because just like we were saying, you and I, you and I and our friend group, you know, that was different than just the pandemic. That was that was over, you know, 20 years, bad boys for life. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like, all right, this was an interesting thing because so many of us were so, a lot of people were, were lost, were alone, were, I'm sorry, I was about to describe apparently, I think the plot to uh, The Land Before Time, <laughs> lost and alone, Littlefoot and his <laughs> friends found, no, uh, but to be together and actually have that and to know like, just like I was saying before, our, our the people that we have, life's collaborative, art is collaborative, friendship is collaborative, everything that's great comes from two sides working together yeah. and trying to be like, all right, let's be there. Let's just let's just check in and the the strength of friendships and bonds that we have in two years is not twenty years like you and I or some of my friends, but it was really great, and I think it really got some of us past those difficult times in the ways that we needed to, you know, at the time. Yeah. And and we're all still we're all still dealing with everything and the ramifications of what we were what was going on the last couple of years. And and yeah, might, it's going to take years. You know what I mean? But yeah, the not fact much that time we can to... be there. Not much time to really process <laughs> any of it. I mean, you yeah, know. we're not exactly Netflix and chilling. I mean, I was Netflix and chilling, but not in the cool, fun way. Yeah, in no, the certainly literal not, way. not. Not in the fun way. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's go back. So, so you, so we met at Stella Adler Studios in New York City. <laughs> yep. We were both we were both in a transfer program. I'd moved over from an acting studio called Cap Twenty One, which had a partnership with NYU. You'd transferred from was it the drama department at Ithaca College? So this is the so the reason why I transferred was I had actually auditioned for the BFA program at Ithaca and then didn't get in. So while that happened, I was doing the I did the Stella Adler 
summer day program, then mm. the Chekhov intensive, oh. the Shakespeare intensive, yeah. and then they had asked me to transfer in. And at the time, what was weird is because I loved my experience at Ithaca. It was everything that you would want from a college experience. Also, I, coming from Manhattan, to actually get out of the city for a little bit mm. makes you appreciate even more as well. But yeah. so I went up there. You were only allowed as a BA, a Bachelor of Arts, not Bachelor of Fine Arts, to take a finite amount of acting classes. By the end of sophomore year, I had taken them all. So basically, wow. the next couple of years were literally just going to be like, all right, well, I guess I'm here and whatever happens after that. But when they asked me to transfer in, I thought, well, this is where I knew I wanted my life to go. And this is an opportunity of genuinely a lifetime have to try. I have to move that forward. And especially if they didn't think that I could be a part of their program. And then even NYU at first wasn't totally sure they wanted to have me as part of the program. Well, tell um, me about that. So you then you transferred in. What was that process like of auditioning for NYU and filling out all the paperwork and then you you then I presumably you had done an Adler program so that gave you a nice kind of in over at that studio but then I yeah. my my guess would be that then you had to audition again for Adler is that right it was well, so what happened was that uh and this is just one of those sort of like stories that you always remember in the way that like you know uh th that kind of feeds your story along the way in that journey but I remember when I called to set up the audition I had spoken to Tom Oppenheim and, mm -hmm. and uh, before, and he'd said, hey, we'd really love for you to try and, and you know, come in. I didn't do it the first semester junior year because I had just moved into a house with a couple of my best friends, and it was so much fun, and I was really there. But I think I realized that, that once in that first semester junior year that I wanted something else out, you know, of just... I was ready for the next step in my life and then especially in career and to really get things going and it would have stalled for a couple of years. And, and so when I did, I called up NYU and uh, the NYU department and uh, I was told by the, uh, by the admissions officer at the time that they're probably not going to have a transfer track and even if they did, I'm not good enough to get in anyway. I uh, I remember that because it was one of those things where I was literally in the middle of doing laundry at our house in Ithaca, and I was like, oh, word? It's not that? And then I remember uh, going and auditioning, and when I auditioned, I had done two monologues, and uh, four NYU came in, did it, but I remember thinking when I left, I don't know if that like totally worked and they all the people at Adler were like really wanted me to come in and do all this and I wasn't sure if I had the best audition I left I got a cheeseburger from the the McDonald's in Union Square and then think I had a cigarette and walked like a mile just being like well I guess th that was my shot I blew it mm -hmm. I don't know where it's going to go after this but hoping and I actually I think I walked up towards Adler to honestly apologize to them for screwing up the opportunity because I was like, I don't know if it went that great. And and I, it, obviously it went well enough where I got in. But I remember being like, damn, you know, this is not going to happen. When did you find out? Did you find out after walking about a mile? Did you get a, a call or something? No, no, you, it was the no, next. No. It, it was I was back at Ithaca. So I was already there because I remember because I remember I was in my room in this in this house in, in Ithaca. And I was like, oh, my God, wait, what? 
you know, like, I, I almost couldn't genuinely believe that that had happened. And, hey, all the hard work, all the determination, Who, all the possibilities. That, what was that phone call like? Who called you? Do you remember? So I had gotten a quite gotten call from one of the, well, one of our other peeps. But then I got the letter, and it went to my uh, my parents' place in the city. And then I remember, I'm pretty sure my dad called me. And was That's like, hey, cool. um, by the way... And, and it was one of those things, too, where they were very, hey, they were wonderfully supportive, but they were like, hey, if this is what you want, this is what you love, then, you know, work hard. And that's why when at the summer day program, the checkup intensive, Shakespeare intensive, and the truth is going in there every time, you know how it is, too, and anyone who's listening in terms of a job, as an artist, of anything, you know, you have to re-earn it every day. Mm-hmm. Whether, whatever oh, relationship yeah. you're often in, you have to, it's just, it's... It's Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Minds, you know? You start with an A-plus hopefully every day and you have to work to earn it. And so do other people. You know what I mean? And you're like, okay. And so worked hard. And I think that I earned the trust and respect of the people at Adler. And so thankfully enough, that that was one of the first biggest things that really ever changed the course of my life and career was that opportunity. And, And it really, it put me on the path towards what we were talking about in the first, you know, ten yeah. minutes of our of our of our love session for us and our friends, and and <laughs> and so yeah, and so it was interesting because transferring in though I was already from the city, so I wasn't coming yeah. in like oh I need to learn New York. It was just like all right, I had done most of my credits, so I was really just doing mostly uh, the Adler program. And at first, when I went in, they put me in the first year. So I, because they wanted me to learn the techniques, which was very smart and great. So I went back at 21 to be in a class with 18 year olds. So does that mean that you came into our group in the second semester of our junior year? Yeah. Yeah. So, so our transfer track was that second semester and there was, and there was a transfer track and I was already seeing the people who were in it. And I was like, you know what? This is, I didn't leave Ithaca for that, you know, and I and I didn't come back to n- take this next step in, in life and career and everything for what I saw there, but I wanted to be at Abbott because I knew what that was and I really connected with it and, and it, you know, a lot of the people, but it just, it made sense in terms of my process, in terms of what I think, in terms of my background, you know, everything just kind of clicked in a way that I was like, yeah, this is going to be the next step. And it really was. Yeah. And so that's why I'll tell you, they were very great about then after the first uh, step, that first semester, though, allowing me to transfer in then to the transfer track. Mm. And that's when we were and that's when we so- met. Our Adler transfer. Yeah, track. so I got to so I got to add here. So the the because this little transfer group that I was in, I so you know NYU has still has these relationships with multiple studios. They have a relationship at the time when you and I were going to NYU. The the University of Tisch School had a relationship with the Meisner Acting Studio, with the Lee Strasberg Institute, with the Adler Stella Adler Studios, and today they still have a relationship with Stella Adler Studios. Some of the other studios they they have they have separated from those partnerships. Um, but so when I so I it gave people a great opportunity to you could go to one you could go to for example the Shakespeare Studio and do that to you know a couple of years there then yeah. you could transfer over to take Stella Adler for a couple of years so I had done musical theater for my first two years and then 
I was always planning to go to an acting studio. I found I fell in love with Stella Adler's studio. I started going over there and watching the shows and but then yeah, so in my little transfer track group, it was it was interesting because it was this quieter this group was on the quieter serious side and I didn't really feel like I was amongst a group of people that I was on the same wavelength with and then all of a sudden that next semester you came in like like a much needed wrecking ball of fun. <laughs> I mean, that's a thing. You were su- super fun. You still are. Hilarious, sweet, self-deprecating, the kind oh, of yeah. person who... <laughs> you just give off the let's get this party started vibe. It was, I mean, oh, I yeah. remember just being like, who is this, this guy? And thank God. Who is that masked man? Thank God for him. And, and why is he wearing a mask? <laughs> oh, he's robbing <laughs> me. Oh, he's um, robbing me. Oh, gee, I should have realized that. And so, after that, and then. Thank th- you. I appreciate that. Things started just getting better and better, right? Because then yeah. the next year, what happened is they blended the Adler fourth years, I guess. Right. With it was the Adler Company. I guess that's where they were calling it at the time. Yeah, so we started getting we, company, we got residency or whatever it was. That's right. So we blended with the the I guess the regular Adler students, and we we met friends like David Langell, who's also been a guest on uh, on season this one. Season one. <laughs> David, who is now Phil from One Division fame, um, and we met our buddy Vinny Buno. Uh, yes. Went on to become an agent and now a manager, and our friend Roger Lertzman. Um, and then we all did a production of David Mamet's play Glenn Gary Glenn Ross in our last year at Adler, which was a production we were very, still are very proud of. Uh, we added a bunch of performances because it was a popular show at the school. One of the best experiences I've had. Really as an was, actor. really was. It was incredible, and they really did change. It was kind of crazy at the time that they added more on. That was the first time they ever added more on and uh, performances. And and it was just like, oh, that that's a real testament to, I think, all our hard work and our chemistry and our friendships together really being showcased on stage because we really loved coming coming to play and rehearsal and to everything. And it, it really was one of the just incredible experiences. And, you know, yeah. looking back on being one of the closers, you know, will always be something. And you and I, and like, and you and I going toe to toe every night when yeah. we're as close as we are, but we were, we were, we were really, it was fun because we trust each other. Yeah, we had that, that we kind knew of trust. That we could go for each other. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I like this. So and, I was, and, and it was, I was fun. You, it was you exciting. Played, it was, it was great. You played Shelley the Machine Levine. Uh, I played John Williamson. Yeah, and we had some great. All, all, all our scenes were basically together. It was great. Yeah, it, was it really was. It was just so, and, we, and, and now, an now we should be redoing it. Now, now it would make well, much more sense. Right, that would be great. I think we need to bribe Vinny out of uh, the cushy lifestyle of, the of agent being game, a bigwig. Yeah, that's what it is. Honestly, he is. I think that's what he might own the corporate office now i talked so to maybe we mean to just get somebody else <laughs> vinny was a great richard roma and then roger i don't know we'd have to get him out of florida 
He's he quit the business. I talked to him a year. One of the most talented actors I've ever worked with. And Incre- he, incredible. Him and Vinny, to be honest with you, even yeah. though like you, Dave, and I are still you know rocking it out. Both of them, I I remember things they did and yeah. learned, grew as an actor at the time being around them, and it's just it's really like a. a, a both of them, the fact that they could both then transition into other places and things, but they really, to this day, I will still go toe to toe with them on stage anytime and be oh, yeah. thrilled. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and then uh, the group of us moved out to LA together, and um, along you with you and I other... flew out together. Yeah, we flew out together, and you know, uh, there were some other Adler folks who who were who had come out, including my at the time soon to be wife, Catherine. And um, it was nice to move out with what felt like a family. And, um, and then, yeah, we bounced around for a few years. We were in Sherman Oaks. Then we were in uh, Eastbourne on the west side. And, uh, and then, yeah, I mean, we started putting some things together. I then got a place in Hollywood with our buddy Bill Savage. I, you started booking television work. You were booking guest spots on... NBC's Chuck and ABC's Hope and Faith. And I I think everybody that I've talked to about moving to LA has a story of how tough an adjustment it is to move here. It takes real survival skills to find your corner yeah. that you enjoy and yeah. the people that you enjoy hanging out with here. And at some point you decided that you'd had your fill of LA for the for the moment and you decided to move back to New York. Yeah. And you know, it was heartbreaking for me, but I was happy for you and I still miss seeing you every day. Um as you said, you know, of course you grew up in New York City. New York is the greatest city in the world. So it made a lot of sense to me that you wanted to be back there. Um but you come back to L.A. every year, at least for a couple of visits. I know you try to stay try as bi-coastal as you can. Yeah. But you've been consistent about it. You come out every year. You come out at least a couple of times. And every time you're coming to L.A., it is, I get irrationally excited because <laughs> I feel like, you know, you know, it. every time I hang out with you, it connects me to um, – who we were when we were younger, we, 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 uh, there's a sense of, I, I, I just feel more relaxed when you're around. So, yeah. You know, I feel the same way. Yeah. Well, that's what, that's what happens when, cause it's not just a one year friendship, you know, it's not just a, a built on, Oh, we, you know, we worked together for this one or two years or we did this show. It's like, no, like over time. And like, to be told for me, yeah. Like the, going out there and getting to see you guys is incredible because I get to have the experience that LA was for me but much like Ithaca with LA I knew and when I knew it hit and it clicked Mm. and it was just like all right let me enjoy this time and it was it was heartbreaking for me too and I look back on that now I think the reason why I when I was talking about hey when we started this off about our appreciation nation about all the incredible people (laughs) in our lives it's like, yeah, you know why? Because it really changed when I left. And, you know, that that was, you know, that was harder and difficult. And, hey, moving back to New York, it wasn't the easy decision, but it was the right one. And, you know, going towards that last year, getting to book some stuff that, that was really fun, getting to 
you know, so to to be able to do Chuck was so incredible because it was at Warner Brothers, and my grandfather had worked at right. Warner Brothers yeah. at, in PR, and so growing That's up, right. to be able to tell him that, like that I put that I worked on the same lot that he did, yeah, was one of those things that you don't you you don't realize how important that is, and then it is, and you're like, wow. That was really something else. Then I got to work with Steppenwolf, and I was uh, Steppenwolf West with Jeff Perry. Oh, I didn't know that. You took the class uh, with Jeff yeah. Perry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kat, so Catherine the had part. taken that, but you weren't in class with Kat. Who, who were you in class with? Were you in class with Steph Black and those folks? No, uh, 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 later on. So what happened was the, the, the irony was that I'd actually flown to New York to audition for the Steppenwolf program in Chicago for the summer. And I really, because I really wanted to work with Jeff Perry. Yeah. And then I come here, audition, don't get in. <laughs> There's a theme here, by the way. Um, and I was like, oh, great. I was like, wait a second. That's not where I parked my car. No, but so, so I didn't get in. And then uh, just the randomness of it all, the irony is that I went back to LA and because of his, uh, Jeff Perry's shooting schedule on Scandal, he couldn't do. Chicago in the summer, so he did his class in LA. I got to audition for him with him. Hmm. Got to have a, the last the last months I was out in LA were just immersed in all the type of theater, and then Second City, everything that I wound up bringing and going into in New York. I yeah. was really doing in LA for almost six months before I left, and then it was like you know what the fact that all these came in, you might think it would tell me you know what wait things are going great. <laughs> you know, and at the same time, I knew what it was. I knew what I was going to become if I continued and stayed there. And it was not somebody that I wanted to be. It wasn't the type of artist, person, friend, you know, confident, whatever it might be. It, it, I, it what, wasn't, what was that? What know. was that feeling for you? Were you just starting to feel a little bit like it was about, uh, I don't know, kissing people's ass or like becoming I mean, something, some version is. of yourself. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, so what was the, what sorry, was the, I say, I sorry, I said that's such a flip. It's true. Sorry, that's such it's a, true. It's no, true, though. You do have it, to humble yourself for people. You do. So, I, I what, think so what do you? A, what was the LA? What was that LA version of it though that you were starting to see and not like? Two things. One, I think that I was getting anti-seasonal depression. You know, because <laughs> nothing ever changes. Nothing ever changes. And it's like, well, it does now because like, we have we have now with global warming. Now we have full seasons. Well, right, right, right. Honestly, it's crazy because now I'm like, I'll leave New York <laughs> and go there. And I'm like, honestly, I'm pretty sure it was nicer in New York when I left. But I don't mean nicer. I think hotter, which is not a good thing. But <laughs> I and, you know, and I come here and have us eat my worst day in L.A. I was still in L.A. My worst day in New York. I can walk out and I'm in New York. Yeah, and, yeah, and I, hear I, I, I moved. I, hear I moved. I moved to Westwood so that I could walk places because of what it was, and I, I loved all our, like our friends and everything that I wanted. But I also, I think that there's this thing that you know, I didn't want to become a caricature of a caricature of a character or person that I once did, 
And I think that's what happens a lot. I you think know, that I, it's like, yeah, yeah. I think somebody tells you, oh yeah, this is. It's like you we're, be, we're instructed. You, you have to be, be this car- meets this. Yeah, you got to be a, a cartoon. cartoon character of yourself. You're a that's, Happy Meal that's character. True. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. And it's like I'm, I'm already cartoonish in everything about me. I'm like a larger than life. It's like you know you are and, a full, so you are a full morning of Saturday cartoons for sure. Oh yeah, damn right. Honestly, just yo get some cereal, pull on up, baby. We're gonna do it today. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and the truth is, I think you either go down that route and you blend in by blending in, or you fit in by standing out. And I think that I I was not going. I didn't feel happy or comfortable going in as an artist really you know what I mean as actress anything uh that I was fulfilling what I every choice that I made hey to to move to to transfer schools to transfer cities you know what I mean to move to all these things that you really like you said it's not easy and when you you know the blood sweat and tears most of it is oftentimes Sisyphus pushing the rock mm-hmm. up the hill and the rock comes tumbling down and you just do it again and those are those days and you have to be like you you got to go through fire and and hell and brimstone sometimes, and if you're not ready for that, or you're not in a place to be ready for that, then you want to say, all right, well, why is that, and what's the next step? And I realized that I didn't want to become, whether or not, no matter what it was in that Happy Meal, whether or not it was uh, McDonald's burger, I get it, one trillion sold, yeah, awesome, but you know what? Sometimes you want to go out for a steak dinner. <laughs> and, and you know, and it's like, all right, well, that's what I want it to be. And while you do, while you do all those along the way, I realized that what I was going to become was going to be a shell of who I was and who I wanted to become. And I already started to see it happening and like creeping in. And I was like, you know what? Let me actually, and I'm sure the same way that a lot of people have over the last couple of years, let me figure out what it is, what it is that I actually want out of my life. And fucking go after it. Yeah, so let you me know? talk about that. So you started, you launched a, a serious stand-up comedy career at, once you got back to New York. In New York. Yeah. <laughs> it was inspiring to me. It motivated me to jump up on stage here in L.A. and do the same uh, to less success. But you... <laughs> I'm, Which I'm sorry. <laughs> Honestly, I think it's more success. I think we're all... I think there's different regions and different ideas, but yes, I, I enjoy I enjoy doing it. I think you know, comedy for me, I think has always been my hobby. It's the thing that I kind of love outside of comedic acting or serious acting yeah. or you know dramatic acting. But um, I love dabbling in comedy. It's a hobby. I don't mind saying that there are people who I, I understand they would get upset to hear anybody say that comedy would be a hobby instead of the only thing that you you do um but i think it just is the way that it is i think that acting was the first thing and and being funny was just sort of like oh yeah i well i try to make people laugh to avoid yeah. getting beaten up is that yeah <laughs> it's not my Which, by the way i think i still do <laughs> it's not my pa- it's not my passion i'm just doing it to you know uh that kind of thing protect is my body my bag baby. yeah but i think like and then you know but you, I'm curious about, you know, what were the, because I remember even early on, you were already getting on lineups where, you know, the headliner would be Jim Gaffigan, but you'd be, and I was like, oh shit, how is he, well, how did you do that in New York? What were those first steps to get booked on shows? So I have to, once again, and, and I think this is something that just is also a 
through line, certain people, you know, championing you. And I had taken a class with Tom Shalou, who uh, is awesome comic, has has his own show on on TV every night. And, and, and there are a certain amount of people that were in that group even the Jen, uh, Jen Statsky, uh, who oh, yeah. wrote, uh, yeah, for, from Hacks and yeah. Chris Grace, like the, uh, my buddy Curb. There was a couple of really great people that um, we got to work on this. And so uh, he had originally booked at Stand Up New York, our graduation mm. show. But it didn't get filmed randomly enough. So he was like, hey, he was really wonderful. He's like, let me get you guys out there. And then he he had a hookup downtown that what was oh gosh I forgot the name of it now but it, it became Gotham Comedy Club but uh, oh really I don't totally no yeah but like so I don't remember so Gotham I, before it was well, Gotham well right because so awesome, Seinfeld thing. goes to it in the comedian right remember oh yeah oh absolutely but it was called I remember something, watching it was, that it was, with it was, you yeah with Orny Adams he's sitting I, there with Orny, Orny Adams, Adams they right. had that talk about it, oh my god the place and I can't you know. On 14th Street, uh, in what now is, I guess, meatpacking, uh, like, the people who worked there actually wound up going over to Gotham when that ended. But I remember, so I was on that lineup with Jim Gaffigan. And I remember this is one of those things that I also really learned a lot about great comics and Gaffigan and people in general that day. So when you're starting out, you have your, your act. You're set. You do this, and you don't deviate because it's so much. You, you don't feel comfortable until much later on. Sure. I feel like to like start improvising and working. I still that's, don't. Right, I right, never right. improvise. No way. Yeah, it's amazingly like I feel like here I can t- I, even here I I write a lot of questions down. Like I, I don't leave a lot to chance, but um, I know you can do that. I mean, that's a that's an incredible skill. Well, I think it really was just trying to, much like uh, athlete, each season add a little bit more into the repertoire yeah. so that every time I could sort of work out of that because you're always going to be in these different situations. And if my improvising gets me out of a, a situation as a stand-up or, or as an actor or as a director, producer, whatever it might be, at host all the time, uh, that's why it works, really. And then at the same time, I went in there with a uh, Jared from Subway bit because this is before we found out. Oh, well, we found out about Jared stuff. from Subway. Yeah, when he when he was just uh, the the spokesperson, when he was basically Flo from Progressive. You know what I mean? Like that's sure. what he was at the time. That's what he was at so, the time. Yeah. He so Gaffigan and I are the only people left in this uh, in the in the room, and I'm back here, and I'm like, oh my god, this Jim Gaffigan, and he was like. Ah, oh, hey, I'm Jim, and I was like, I I know That's who you very are. Good. You're amazing. <laughs> You're great. And, and he was like, Ah, oh, so uh, what do you do? And I was like, Oh, I actually have a a, a bit on Jared from Subway. He's like, Ah, oh, oh, I have a bit on Jared from Subway too. But I, you know, I'm not going to do it tonight. Then so you can go out there and have fun with it. Ah, that's and, so cool. And, and it was like, you know what? That's a perfect, like, that's, and I loved, and I've loved him ever since, and I will love cool him for the rest it. of my life. Yeah. Because he was, he, because he knew we're in this together. You know what I mean? This, this, yeah, yeah. whatever it is that we, this multiverse of madness we're in, mm-hmm. we're in it together. And I think that, you know, kindness is one of the greatest things you can yeah. really ever bestow upon someone, especially when they're having that. Yeah. And so every time that I could do that and make, 
the shows better. And honestly, I think that's why when I started working a little bit more, I think I also wasn't like a jabroni to everyone. And that's why people are like, oh, he, he's cool. He's nice. He's good. Let, let's try. And like, and every time you go in there, you have a chance to sink or swim. And thankfully enough, I feel like at first I just was, I was earning, I was earning, you know, uh, the respect and the trust, which I think are both separate but very important things to have with your with uh, a, any person that you wind up being with, like not just in life but artistically. You know, like yeah. we were saying before. You know, the the TJ and Dave are doing what they're doing because they're so com- they they can just work it around. They can take anything. Move it and go. Other people, oh, yeah. right? They're probably just going to do a TJ bit. And Dave, and... you're talking about the, the, these are the Sonic commercial guys, but also more importantly, yes. the Chicago yeah. guys who improvise like an entire half hour show as a as a two hander, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, go for it. Yeah, I want to hear more about that. No, I just it, so it, so I was very fortunate, and because I had a lot of wonderful people coming to support me at first, you know, then it was. You know, you start out pay to pay to play in a weird way. I mean, not this uh, the opportunity cost of one you pay for the a other. class. Like, you get a graduation right. show. Yeah, right, right. And so it's like, all right, that's all. That's hey, that's how UCB UCB came to prominence. That's how a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It, it was a smart business model, and you can't hate on somebody for having a smart business model, especially when you're taking classes and it was good stuff. But I think along the way you have to then deviate from just doing that. Then that's why I started to go out and do my own show because I realized, okay, this is great. But if you're going to ask somebody to give you their night, right, which is a form of payment in its own right, mm-hmm. especially when, you know, it's like, hey, if you have kids, a life, anything, you're at work, you don't, you want to go home and chill. You want to see the family. You want to spend time with the kids, whatever it might be. So if somebody is choosing to go out to see you, you know, you owe them a little bit more. And a lot of those shows wind up becoming just extended bringer shows mm-hmm. and like and i understand and you get a lot of experience on stage and it's fair and it's good but <clears throat> you can only ask so many people to come to so many of those shows before you have to be like all right it's got to be better it's got to be here the quality of the work of everyone now people can come in and not have the best night or best set that happens all the time but those yeah. became a <clears throat> Uh, four people out of a 10 lineup were even okay. And I was one of them. And it's like, all right, people start. So so that's why in a, in a way I started to really learn and, and, and grow from that. And that led into being more conscious of what I wanted to be as a producer and yeah. to actually continue it going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And then so you, so, and I want to talk about your producing as well. You're, you're producing your comedy show, but also you know, around this time, it, it seemed that you were getting involved over at places like you said, UCB. You were also over at the the famed People's Improv Theater in New York, run by comedian and teacher Ali Faranakian. Is the pit still up and running, by the way? Did it survive the pandemic or no? No, yes and no. The the big theater where a lot of us were doing major stuff in uh, downtown is gone, but they still have these smaller theater. The loft space. On t- the loft space. Yeah, yeah, the loft space. So, <clears throat> and... And, and and then I yeah that's it was interesting because then I got to also then work with artistic new directions right the AD so I theater talk company about that. yeah so you fell in at that then at a certain point with a very prominent theater company called artistic new directions 
included a lot of legendary improvisers and theater makers, including, I believe, Second City's uh, Dave Rozowski. Is that right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how it it came to be, was how I met Scotty Watson was through a not-so-great improv uh, troupe in New York, but I... (laughs) But that will uh, remain nameless. But but he and Rosowski were great friends and have been, you know, close for years, just like we were talking about our friend crew. So I met Scotty Watson and then he and then that's how I met Christine Niven, who was basically A&D was Second City, New York. And then that's how that's how all of them were together. And then they just changed the accreditation and they didn't have one in New York anymore. But all the people who were teachers at Second City, New York, then wound up moving over. So then they wound up mm-hmm. moving over to A&D. And so, you know, Jeffrey Sweet, who literally wrote the book right. on Second City, Something Wonderful Right Away, at Rosowski, Michael Gelman. I mean, and people Jeffrey Sweet who, was, the, was the guy who wrote the scene you and I performed in our showcase for Adler. Right, right. right yeah, which is, so which funny. the, I mean, the fact that which it got you, Which got around, you an agent. It did not get me an agent. It did get you an agent. <laughs> no, no, no. Here's what got me the, no. What, what got me in at the time was, the pizza man scene where I pretended to be like a pizza guy who was in like a porno. And that, and once again, going back to the difference of our work. Oh, that's a very famous acting scene. Yeah. The the pizza man. And I was like, okay, I get it. And it was good. But I remember thinking, everybody uses it for a showcase and it was fun. It was great. But I'm, and also, who was that with a lot of the, that was with Amy and Marley, Amy Ewing and Marley. Amy Ewing and Marley's, right? Yeah. 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 And so it was funny. And, and I was that like, got you the agent? Oh, why? Because who? Because you signed with CEST, right? Right. But also, what happened was, I, when I went in for the, I, I was conscious of the fact that the business was going to be, hey, they might be, they might think I'm talented, but they also have to know how serious you are, because otherwise, why are they wasting time with you? And so going in there and having already met these amount of casting directors. And these casting directors being able to vouch for me in New York and and say that they would bring me in for this or that. And I, I didn't book them, but I had gone in, really helped. When, so I sat down for my meeting at CESD after that showcase. And I gave and I literally gave them a list of all the of like 10 people that they could call hmm. to have a actual like these are people I feel very confident as, you know, testimonials. You can call them. I don't need to put it on here, but if you'd like to call them, they're all, all wonderful, and I think that they know my work. That's and I think it also, yeah, and I think they also realize, okay, well, you're serious, and that's important because it makes their job easier. Once again, the collaboration. I don't think that any of it just happens. Every time I've gotten something, it was, you know, it was both uh, meeting the agent or casting director before, and then maybe the the agent or casting director brought me in, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a period of time. So I booked Chuck, you know, was over time having met Todd Cherry multiple times, and it was like, all right, well, he trusted me, and you know why? His career's on the line. Like if he's bringing in no like people who are just making him look bad, hey, th- this is you know, Coca Cola. You know what I mean? This is American Airlines. This is you know, major studios who are coming to you. You have to be sure that this person isn't a no talent ass clown, you know, who just fooled you one night. And I'll tell you, a lot of people are really good at fooling you. That's what it is. You, you could fool somebody for five minutes in an audition, but what I tried to spend the last twenty years doing was being ready for the part when I went in there and did it. You know, mm-hmm. so it was like, all right, well, let's you know, let's get down to business. Yeah, hell yeah. So now. now Around this time, uh, this is also, I believe, the point that you met your mentor 
uh, Mr. Gary Austin, right? Right, which I didn't. I specifically didn't bring up in that last one because he's that important. Yeah, and he gets his own one of bylaws. Yeah, like yeah. He, 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 yeah, he gets his own floor. You his know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, building, yeah. Like literally, just to think about it, and it was such an had one of the best friends, mentors, directors, people. Like to learn from him, to grow, and to really have somebody who advocated for me. And and once again, even after all my hard work talent, commitment, dedication, it still took, you know, for that next level, certain people, that sort of blessing. Yeah. So now for Gary, for, for, for everyone out there. So I mean, some people know who he is, uh, but for anyone else, Gary Austin was the founder and original director of the famed Groundlings Theater Company in Los Angeles. Previous to that, Gary was a member of the legendary improv company, the committee where he worked with folks like Del Close. Um, and, you know, you started working with Gary. You eventually you started coming out to L.A. to perform at the Groundlings Theater on multiple occasions. Um, Which was a career highlight. Like, I couldn't even believe when it was yeah. happening. I went from doing a, a show in New York on Sunday to flying out and then being in a group with some of the most incredible improvisers I've ever been on, like with to be on like almost like a Yankee stadium of, of theaters and mm. to be there and to actually get to have such an incredible experience. I, I will always be thankful. It's just like the Glenn Gary thing. It's that was th- those experiences are ones that made me realize, all right, well, this is how great it, this is how hard you have to work, how good you have to be to be at that next great level. You know, you can be good, you can be really good, but then greatness and then next level evolution we I, I saw it firsthand and sometimes i think you need to see it firsthand to mm-hmm. really experience i just saw it was like oh my god i, I it was like matrix vision you know i just saw <laughs> things in a different way everything was green zeros and ones yeah and then i was like oh wait oh wait should i get glasses <laughs> no but it, it it was and to work with gary and and him also just be such a just a, a a person, you know, and who always strived and 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 grew as you know, not as an not only as an improviser, as a director, as a musician, like to to always grow and change. And you know, I look like Bill Hader right now with what he's doing with Barry. Yeah, and um, I'm just so I'm amazed because he was, is one yeah. of the great one of the great character actors and one of the best from SNL from our entire generation. I mean, he was. Yeah. You know, he's Dan Aykroyd in a lot of ways Ooh, of that. You know what I mean? That's cool. And that's yeah. how good he was. And then yeah. to be now a writer, a director, a producer, all that, you know, you bring it all together. Great director, by the way. These last episodes oh my God. have been incredible, oh my God. right? Yeah. And that's what it is. You know, and yeah. you learn. And so, and Gary taught me so much of also, to and, and, and when I sort of lost at times a little bit of that walking in the room with a, a bat out of hell... You know, feel he reminded me who I was and what I was and would yeah. tell me to get out of my fucking way and, you know, and like go out there and do this. But he would also be, he, he you know, he'd be tough. But, you know, he'd be tough because he wanted you to be great and he wanted everyone to be great. And and I just, yeah, to actually be in his like atmosphere, let alone his world and 
it, it's one of the greatest, once again, gifts that I was ever given. And it changed my life. It changed my performance. Yeah. It changed just the way I look at so many things. And I, I'll always be indebted to him and, and all, you know, and, and Scotty, Christine, Jeffrey, Rosowski, Michael Gelman for all the things that I got to, Janice Goldberg, like these people I got to meet and they they led me to this and this was the you know it, when when i moved back to new york the idea when anyone's kind of i guess creating their bucket list you know or what you want out of your life your career your art whatever it might be you almost see like a if a silhouette like a person who's walking towards you and like a, a blinding light. Kind of like what Frank Langella did to both of us, right? <laughs> <laughs> so imagine, I still have a floater, by the way, thanks to Frankie Lange. But so imagine, <laughs> so uh, uh, imagine you just see like a shadow in front of you, right? And you see, and you see that silhouette, but as it's getting closer, you can start to make out the shape, the character, the, you know, the depth of it. And then mm. that's what was happening with New York, it was like, all right, all these things are starting to give shape to something that I didn't realize was just a, an idea or a shadow or a silhouette. And then it started to come towards me and I was like, wow, I could do this and I could do this and I could work with these incredible people and be around them and be so happy that it made every decision, like the decision to move back to New York after all those things, met some of the greatest collaborators, friends, loves of my life because of that decision. And, you know, that was an old Indiana Jones, only the penitent man will pass. Well, that was it, you know? And it led to these things that I don't, I don't, there's not a day that I don't probably think about him and use some of his yeah. teachings in ways, shapes, or form. And, you know, his, his Mount Rushmore, you know, mm -hmm. in life and, and in the biz. And it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. And now, and so now, these days you're busier than ever. You've been running your own stand-up showcase, laughing a draft for at least a decade now, uh, introducing audiences to hundreds of talented stand-up comedians and touring the show at theaters and venues on both coasts. Um, and you've got upcoming comedy gigs at the Fulton Grand in Brooklyn. You've got Pete's Candy Store coming up, and uh, most importantly. You're getting ready to release your debut comedy album, which is going to be called Those Wilder Years, which is set to drop this fall. I'm very oh. excited about this. You want to talk a little bit about this special? Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely tell you about it. I absolutely did that as a joke to fuck with you at the end of my bio. No, you didn't. Are you serious? I absolutely, I absolutely well, wait did. Wait a minute. I, so, so I swear to you, I so when you said, I was just thinking, oh, what's going to pop Claude? Like pop is like a, a wrestling term. What's going to make him laugh? So, Well, the I, Captain actually, America so, photo was great. <laughs> oh, dude, I was just literally trying to do all the things possible to be like, oh, this is so much fun and great. And I appreciate it. You know, so, so, I had a, so when I went and found this old bio, because it's been a couple of years because of the pandemic, I had, and this is before... Straight out of Compton came out. I had it said, "Look for my debut album." Straight out of Hebrew school, dropping this oh, fall. Yeah, right. Yeah, but just like I always find it funny. It's like, oh yeah, my, my album's dropping this fall, and I was like, I just, I, I genuinely didn't even think about it like that. So I, it was more like a joke if somebody's reading it. Like, well, wait a oh, minute. cool. What? I guess why? I should now. Yeah. Why is it a joke? Why is it a joke? I don't understand. I mean, I get the. Why are it, you doing funny. this? It would be funny if this leads in 
do that? Like, hey, so how did you decide to uh, finally do your first comedy album? How much time do you have at this point? You've got to have. I would bet that you have an hour. Yeah, you know what it is? It's a matter of uh, what to put together, how to put it together. That's one of the, one of the things start, that actually... You could start with a half hour. Well, because I, I have one story that is mm. almost 10 minutes about me being Jewish in the South with an ex and like all that. And oh, I yeah. love yeah, it, yeah. you know, right. and, and like, and, and now I love that I can, what I did, I'm going back and it's one of my favorite things to do in stand up is actually to sometimes rearrange, be like, all right, so this time I'm going to take this like eight minute set or this five minutes and I'm going to put this three minute set over here and then I'm going to put this five minute over here and then switch them around and figure out which sort of the the puzzle of it all. And now what I realized is a lot of things, you know, being Jewish in a modern era, uh, it, th- those, uh, there's a lot of humor, but there's a lot of not so funny that no, if I don't so talk stuff. about, yeah, yeah. that if I don't talk about it, it gave me a lot more of a focus because, you know, I, I loved my, well, the irony that my Harry Potter weekend jokes might actually not go over so well either anymore. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> yeah, JK. Yeah. JK, right. JK, right? But like, however, though, when I'm going talking about, you know, a Marjorie Taylor Greene, <laughs> thinking that people control, like, oh, and just for the listeners, I'm not holding out on you. I don't have the codes to space lasers in sky. What the fuck? Pigs in space. What an amazing time to be barely alive anymore. Um, Right? Like being alive, being barely alive. And that's what it was. So, so yeah, you're right. I mean, like, it's one of those things where, like you said, with TikTok too, when I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people who I saw who were really good comics, but did you know, kept on being in that almost like Willy Wonka glass elevator. You see it mm-hmm. around you, but you can't do anything. And now, because of whether some people on Twitter, some people on you know, not Facebook as much anymore, uh, but you know, Instagram, like Twitter, like TikTok is hitting. When I okay, so now when on at Yankee games, when you see on like the Yes Network. It says follow us at Yankees TikTok, mm, right? Yeah. It's not even like it's not even Twitter, Instagram. You know, I, honestly, I'm still wondering when they're going to bring back Friendster. You know, it just it really it hit home <laughs> at the time. You no, know, like Tom from MySpace is just out there. Him, he's chilling with Tupac in some island. You know, and he's like, yeah, yeah. But so I, well, you know, I probably of, do need to do that. Well, yeah. Speaking of, I want to ask you. So finally, where where can people find you online? Yes, you can find me uh, at something wilder. Leave off the G, or bring the G. Nothing yeah, you but are G the bag. you are the G. Yeah, like a little something something, but something wilder, and at pretty much everything. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I, I even even if I'm not on like Twitch, I'm probably twitching more than I'm on Twitch. But at the same time, uh, I have them all, so I can really set it on up for the next. There's a lot of things that are ruminating. There's a lot of things that over the last couple of years, I was ready to transition and evolve into. And they didn't completely work always on Zoom and on the online comedy stuff because a lot of people who know this, who saw them or experienced it like you and I, it wasn't dependent on the talent itself. 
it was dependent on the internet connection of the other person. Sure thing. You know, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there were so many things that uh, a wonderful, like a great friend, Nicole Pandolfo and I, who's an amazing playwright, we, we had put on a short play series. Oh yeah. That's uh, right. on, on, and, and I was like, wow, that was a learning experience. Everyone was great. And you know, it didn't, it, it was something that I need to be like, all right, well, this is the next step. The next step is now finding a theater and bringing all those wonderful people back together again, but talking about the modern day existence. Now putting in, hey, I can now have the, the stuff about being Jewish in the South, but I can also talk about, you know, the, the guy who was eating Subway ribs. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, Claudia, I love you. Please forgive me for not getting you on the pod sooner. You're, you are one of the most fiercely talented actors that I know. You're absolutely hilarious. One of the most fun people anyone who has ever met you has ever met. And you should have been my first guest instead of Chris Pine. <laughs> well, in, fa in, in fairness, though, in fairness, though, I'll Venmo you after we get off. Dum, 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 dum. If you listened all the way to the end of this episode, thank you. Hey, since you stuck around with us, why not go ahead and give us a subscribe? Or perhaps a sweet, sweet five-star rating. A nice comment. And we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality conversation in the future. You can check out our Patreon and our swag for more ways to support the pod. You can find both in our Instagram handle at Things Are Going Great For Me. Stay tuned because we've got six more incredible episodes premiering every Wednesday, including interviews with Leonard Robinson, Claiborne Elder, Beth Reisgraf, Susie Abramite, Gil McKinney, Sufi Bradshaw, Ji Young Han, and Michael Grant Terry, to name more than a few. Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontiero, and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our graphics editors are Sierra Hauser and Leon Simone. All right, for you truly thorough listeners, here's a secret. I'm recording this on Monday, which is Halloween. Last night, we watched this movie called The Barbarian from writer-director Zach Kreger. Zach is the husband of one of the guests of this podcast, Sarah Paxton. It was excellent, hilarious, and super scary. I literally laid in bed for two hours listening for every house sound that seemed off to me. So I'm incredibly tired today. And still scared. It's a great movie. See you next time. Dum, 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 dum.